You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. This should be a wonderful discussion. Joined by um, Governor and Ambassador Madeline May Cunin. She served as the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 until 1991 as a member of the Democratic Party. She was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. Uh, I had spoken with her a number of years back on her book, The New Feminist Agenda, She is joining us on our program now to talk with us about a new publication entitled Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, a Memoir. It's so nice to speak with you again. Good morning. Good morning. Part of the, um, I guess, way of getting us started is some people refer to you as governor. Some people refer to you as ambassador. Um, Your tenure as governor obviously was longer, but ambassador was more recent. Does one title resonate more with you than the other? Not really. Um, Governor is a little more useful in Vermont, where people know me as that. But uh, both positions were very fascinating and a great honor to hold. And, uh, you know, coming back to Switzerland as ambassador, the country where I was born, that was kind of a homecoming to and, and had its own challenges. In this book, one of the things that you talk about fairly early on, you use the phrase, I am not old. <laughs> what would being old be like? Well, being old, well, you know, in a way I am, in a way I'm not. Um, the reason I said that I wrote a poem uh, where I was at a jazz concert, and uh, it just got to me. You know, I was I was pounding my feet and uh, swinging my arms. It was just so lively and captivating. So I felt I felt uh, the same as the young people there. So I think. Obviously, at the age of 85, I can't deny that I'm old. But in this book, this book is different from the other books that I wrote because I'm turning more inward. I'm trying to examine how my body and my mind are changing as I make this transition to old age. Well, how old do you actually feel? (laughs) Well... Probably about 45. <laughs> yeah. But some days when I'm climbing stairs and my knees speak to me, um, I know that uh, I'm changing. But the important thing is I can still do the stairs. Well, that along with the fact that, you know, you still have your, your faculties uh, completely about you. Because if you have your mind, I think... That's one of the most important things and that a lot of us really think about as we start to uh, age. You know, we want to be able to preserve our, our, our mental faculties. So if you've got that, that's some people say that's half the battle right there. That's right. That's right. And to still 
retain your curiosity, you know, to want to know what's happening, uh, what's going to happen the next day, or to meet a new person or get a new idea, um, to just, you know, be alive um, as as the uh, future is shorter, you live more intensely and, you know, sort of carpe diem, seize the day, because uh, you don't know how many days are ahead. As the first woman in U.S. history to have been elected governor of a U.S. state three times, did you feel specific pressures? Well, yes and no. I mean, once you're in the job, you try to do the best you can, no matter what. But I also knew that I would be a role model for future women in that position. And so I was conscious of that. But, uh, you know, I did my best, and uh, it was... It was a challenge, but it was also a great adventure. And uh, I could also create new pathways for other women. About half the people in my administration were female, and that was because there was a lot of talent out there. But you know, one way to define power is to use power to empower others. And so I, I did consciously try to do that. You have identified with the feminist movement since the 1970s. In terms of your feminist awakening, if I can phrase it that way, what kind of role did books play? Did this book play? Well, inviting it, I entered a, a different zone of my thinking. Uh, when I was in politics and a public figure, I felt I had to be very careful like most politicians feel, with some exceptions, of course. But I had to watch my words. I had to watch how I behaved. And being out of politics, being a former governor and former ambassador, I have a certain freedom um, that I can wear what I want to wear and, and speak what I want to speak. Of course, still within some limits, of course, because you never totally stop putting words through a sieve to uh, keep out anything that might boomerang or uh, offend people. So, uh, but I'm, I'm still very much engaged in equality for women, and I have been all of my public life. And, of course, this has been such a banner year where more women than ever ran for local office for Congress. And it's so healthy. It's so exciting that uh, women are saying, you know, we belong at the table. If we don't like what's happening in this country or in our state, we have to have a vote. We have to have a voice. And the best way to do that is to really get jump into the political system. It was 1933 when you were born in Zurich. How did your family know when it was time to leave? Switzerland was surrounded by countries invaded, invaded by the Nazis. So it got awfully close. It's a small country. I mean... 
There was, of course, Germany, and the day we arrived in the United States, Italy, Italy was in the war, uh, France. It was, it was getting dangerous, and especially as a Jewish family, we felt the best way to handle this scary situation was to come to America. Some of my family went to Israel. Some went to Great Britain. So people who who could flee did. Having been a refugee, how did that impact and how does it impact how you feel about immigration these days? Of course, having, as you know, been an immigrant, I have a very positive attitude towards immigration. I have to to accept the fact that being an immigrant from Europe uh, was easier than the situation is for immigrants today in America, from Latin America and Asia and, and the Middle East. It's a struggle, and there are quotas, and they're they're coming with often without an education or training for a career. But the motive is exactly the same, for a better life. I mean, we were a middle-class family. My mother was a widow. My father died when I was two. So it was different, but we, uh, we couldn't. My mother spoke a little English, and I learned English pretty quickly. But I think being an immigrant also gave me that old-fashioned patriotic feeling about America. And my mother would say to me and my brother, anything is possible in America. And we believed that. And that was our our attitude and our optimism. I mean, that's one reason I got into politics, because I believed that I could do that, that uh, anything was possible in America. Now, you're not a Holocaust survivor, but you do harbor Holocaust survivors' guilt. How do you explain that? Well, members of my family were killed in the Holocaust, and aunt and uncle, and uh, my father was German, uh, though my parents lived in Switzerland, and on my mother's side, they were French. So, I don't know how many were killed, uh, but I know that my aunt and uncle uh, died in a concentration camp, and a cousin died at Auschwitz. Uh, so I was affected, and if my parents had stayed in Germany, I, I would be one of the victims. So I feel a, a great connection uh, with with those people, and I feel they should be remembered somehow and not just die as the anonymous six million. Madeline Cunin joins us on our program on The Fan this morning. We're talking on our program with uh, Madeline May Cunin. Uh, she is a uh, Someone who has had a very interesting lifestyle, uh, to say the least. She served as the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 to 1991 
as a member of the Democratic Party. She was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education of the United States from 1993 to 1996. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. She's written three previous books. She is joining us to talk with us about her latest book, Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. And she's our guest in this portion of our program. What did you know of your father's life before his marriage to your mother? Sadly, my father died when I was very young, two and a half, and uh, he committed suicide, which is still a hard thing for me to say um, because it's such a loss even after all these years. I knew he was, he, he grew up in a small rural town in Germany and was self-educated and became a successful businessman. He imported shoes from the United States and other places and had shoe shops uh, in about five different cities. And um, unfortunately, he uh, suffered from depression. And he was actually in World War One, where I now consider, having read about a little bit about him, that he had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and uh, though they didn't have a name or a diagnosis for that at the time. Disposing of sentimental artifacts is something that most people have or will have to deal with. You have had some possessions that are of interest not just to you, but to the country. What was it like downsizing to prepare to move to where you now live? Well, I think every every person who downsizes, it's a common common practice as you get older, as you move into a smaller place or, or assisted living. Um, it's each object has some meaning, you know, like a, a, a silver tea set reminded me of my mother and my aunt and reminded me that I hadn't polished it in years. Um, books go through various chapters of your life. So you're really shedding uh, some of your history. But at the same time, you're kind of leaving yourself open for new experiences and a new kind of life. So it can be hard, but then it can be sort of liberating at the end. Uh, and that's how I describe downsizing. I, I describe different things that I've experienced, you know, how my body is changing at this age. Um, but in the book, I also try to be... Um, upbeat, uh, because I can still enjoy a sunset, and and you have more time to enjoy things that are happening to you now. And uh, I think it's just important to make friends. The hardest thing is when friends die, and when family members die. And so it is a period of loss. But it is also a period of gain if you're fortunate enough to experience it. 
I don't want to make getting old just a happy experience. And it's your fault if you're not doing it right. I I think you have to have a certain amount of financial security and uh, have hopefully family and friends uh, and then the ability to make new friends. You founded an organization called Emerge Vermont. Would you tell us a little bit about the organization, why you founded it? Well, we've had a wonderful year. Emerge is also in other states. And what we do is we recruit and train women to run for office. We don't raise money for them. Uh, Other organizations do that. But women still believe most of the time that they don't know how to run for office. And we're so used to taking a course to tell us what to do in other fields, but there's no degree in running for office. So we teach people how to speak in public, how to run a campaign. And this year has just been fantastic as more women have run uh, and women of color and women who've had other careers like nurses or teachers. So it's a wonderful trend uh, to help make democracy work uh, so that we are not we are not ruled by, pardon me for saying it, old white men, which is the predominant portrait you see when you see members of Congress. At this point... In your life, with the things that you've accomplished, your work, are you happy? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Most of the time I am. Yes. I, I mean, I consider myself fortunate uh, that I'm basically healthy uh, and that I can still get out and do things and march in the Women's March when I did. And I have wonderful children and grandchildren and good friends, so I'm basically happy. That doesn't mean I never get depressed or I never get upset. I do. I'm a normal person in that sense. But fundamentally, yes, I am happy. Madeline May Cunin, talking with us on our program. Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, the book. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly, good luck with this book. And good luck continued with your your work and your life. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bob Salter and joined by Dale McGowan on our program. Uh, Dale has an interesting uh, background. He is a uh, Harvard uh, human, Humanist of the Year. Uh, he teaches parenting uh, workshops across the uh, country and serves as executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief. He's the author of two books previously. We're going to be talking about his latest book. It has a very interesting title, In Faith and in doubt, how religious believers and non-believers can create strong marriages and loving families. The book is published by Amacom. It's nice to have you join us on our program, first of all. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Bob. This latest book, um, what's the inspiration for it? Well, the inspiration for it was uh, the growing number of uh, people who are in these marriages, in marriages between religious believers and non-believers, And uh, the initial inspiration was actually my own marriage. Uh, 23 years ago, I married a Southern Baptist, and uh, I am an atheist. So uh, 
right away it was a, uh, a topic of interest to me, and as I got to know more people in that situation, I realized that some resources were really needed. What was the experience like, or what has the experience been like in your marriage? Uh, well, uh, our situation was interesting. This is one of the reasons that I, uh, it didn't occur to me to write the book for some time. Uh, we had very little conflict. You would think that a Southern Baptist and an atheist would have nothing in common, <laughs> no basis for, uh, for building a uh, relationship. But we actually had very few issues. We found that uh, the difference between us was in beliefs, in relative abstractions, you know, what we thought was true about the universe, uh, not in values. Our values, what we thought was good, what we thought was important in life, uh, those were very much aligned from the beginning. So uh, we had relatively little uh, conflict, but I began to uh, meet more and more people who were in these situations who had different variables in play. And uh, they frequently ran into a lot of conflict. So I wanted to see what the difference was between my relatively tension-free marriage and somebody else's that, that sometimes ends in divorce. When you say they had, you know, these sort of things that were issues, what kinds of issues? Well, the issues range from, um, you know, interpersonal issues between the couple. Uh, if you have a religious partner, for example, who thinks that uh, her spouse is going to hell, that's something that's going to get in the way of the uh, of the marriage, that's a um, uh, that's going to be tension-inducing. If you have an atheist who thinks that a religious partner is not intelligent, uh, that's going to get in the way. Uh, dogmatic thinking, uh, a desire to convert the partner, uh, is one of the strongest tension markers that I found in these relationships. Uh, you have to go into it saying, uh, "I accept you as you are. I am not in this relationship to change you uh, to be what I am." And if couples can master some of those variables and keep communication open, things tend to go much better. That idea of keeping the communication open, and I'm assuming when you say that keeping communication open means keeping the communication, you know, as full and as free as possible, too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. What you have to do is uh, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, you're in a relationship, uh, you're sharing a life. And uh, if there's something that's important to one of the partners to talk about, to engage in, um, then it really has to be okay to talk about that. We can't continue to push things to the uh, uh, back into the shadows. That just builds up in a relationship in a toxic way. And when things are not, you know, put out there in that honest fashion, where you know somebody feels comfortable enough to be able to talk about this with, you know, their life partner. Uh, when that happens, I mean, it would seem that is just a prescription for conflict. Oh, it absolutely is. And this is something that even outside of the realm of religion uh, is well known in, in uh, relationship, uh, uh, among relationship experts. Uh, having an open communication, having a willingness to confront things honestly, uh, to be honest about your own feelings, all of these are the things that uh, add up to a, uh, a strong relationship. And if you keep something, especially something as potentially important as religious beliefs uh, bottled up. If you keep that uh, you know, to yourself and don't talk about what the things are that, uh, that bother you in the relationship or that the things that you need uh, in the relationship along those lines, uh, that's not going to get any better. <laughs> that's not something that uh, over time is, is going to uh, typically diminish. It will usually go the other way. The idea of communication is one aspect of this. Where does, you know, basic respect. Basically, you're respecting the other person's views, um, the other person's worldview. Where does that fall in this? 
Well, this is an interesting uh, uh, topic. I actually think it's one of the things that uh, is kind of a breakthrough is when people realize that they can respect a person uh, as an individual. They can respect that person's right to hold the beliefs that they have and even the, the person's intentions in, in holding those beliefs without saying, yes, I respect the beliefs as well. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. We're in discussion with Dale McGowan. He's the author of In Faith and In Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. Ronald Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, in his background, is an obstetrician, gynecologist, and medical author. Um, He is uh, joining us on our program. In his role, specifically, as the author of The Care of the Older Person, an Invaluable Resource for Care Providers. Now, just saying that title probably got a lot of people's attention as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program, Dr. Kaplan. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, when we talk about this idea of society getting older, and there are a lot of people in society getting older, because as many people say, you know, you want to get older because the alternative is not, not the greatest uh, thing to consider. Um, for somebody who's taking care of someone who is an older person, how challenging an experience can that be? Well, it can be very challenging. It depends the way you look at it. Uh, right now, uh, there are 50 million of us, us including me, in uh, the United States alone. And... Uh, there's a predominance of uh, women over men in that statistic, and it can be challenging for a lot of reasons. Number one is uh, probably first and foremost is that traditionally retirement age is considered to be, uh, give or take, 65 years of age in our society. And the reasons for that are very interesting. Uh, Namely, about 150 years ago, a German diplomat uh, decided, it was von Bismarck, <laughs> he decided that the uh, average age of death of his workers in Germany was about 67, so that if he retired them at 65 uh, with, a, with some kind of a bonus or payoff, then he could hire younger people and come away with much less money because of course, younger people started a, a lower wage and then gradually worked their way up, or that's the way it was then. So we somehow, for 150 years, have kept this same idea in our heads that at 65 you lay off people, and that's rapidly becoming obsolete. So people are looking at a loss not only of uh, some of their income and some of their livelihood, but what they've been doing for a huge proportion of their life, uh, people don't realize until they, until they quit or laid off or retired, they don't realize how much of their life is involved in their work. And especially if you find whatever work you're doing fulfilling and rewarding, 
as a lot of us do, thankfully, uh, when that goes away from your life, it leaves an enormous void, and that has to be filled. And yes, people have other activities, but they quickly find out that those other activities may not be as meaningful to them or as important to them as their work was. And they don't get the same level or feel that they get the same level of respect once they've left uh, the employed world. They, they don't feel that they matter as much. As far as their family goes, uh, people inevitably get sick and unfortunately die. And that may mean that even though you may be 65 or older and healthy, uh, you may lose a spouse, you may have a sick spouse, you may have other things happening to your friends and, and relations, and you're losing contacts that have been lifelong contacts and that have been meaningful and loving to you. And you, as the years go on, can feel more and more isolated. I think I'm drawing much too bleak a picture here because a lot of us uh, develop a lot of other interests and do a lot of other things like me talking to you on the radio. And you, you find fulfillment in other ways to be perfectly trite about it, uh, one, one answer is to make a lot of younger friends, be, be around younger people, because inevitably the people you're around are going to, in one way or other, wander off or disappear. So when you're talking about that person or persons who are caring for someone who's older, I guess... What should they be keeping in mind to kind of keep things in perspective, especially as if they're just starting out in that role as a caretaker? Well, it's really not as complicated as it sounds. The reason why we put out this book, and it's uh, put out by a, a group of people who are uh, very experienced academicians and clinicians who uh, are used to dealing with uh, the older population, what we realized is is that we bank up almost 20% of the population, and that's going up to around a quarter of all people in the next 10 or 12 years. That's a lot of people. And the, the geriatricians, the people who are most trained to take care of this population, of course, they can't take care of a quarter of the population of the United States or uh, other countries. So uh, what we realized is, is we had to get information out into the field to everybody who takes care of older people. And if you want to sum the whole thing up in uh, two sentences, it's the golden rule. Do unto others the way you would like them to treat you. And... Uh, we can we can see that uh, that if you're if you're kind and if if you're caring and if you want to spend the time and the energy to to help somebody who's older, uh, then you're a good person. And we like to think of ourselves as good people, and especially the people we're around who 
we love and we care about, our relatives, our good friends that we've known for for a long time, that we grew up with, uh, it's, it's a natural thing to do to want to help those people. And if each of us did that, it would ameliorate a, a tremendous amount of, of what is a, a burgeoning problem. The other thing is, for goodness sake, don't be condescending. An older person, just because they may be getting a little frail and maybe a little forgetful, and maybe they tend to fall down here and there, that doesn't mean they're stupid. They have a vast life experience, probably better than yours if you're much younger than, than them, and they, they know a lot of stuff. And not only that, they can sense how you feel towards them the same way any of us can tell who's real and who's phony and who's, who really has, cares for us and who's really just there for some other reason, for the money or, or because they have to. You want people around you who are genuinely caring. And you have to understand that the person you're taking care of or helping is at least on the same level as you, and maybe uh, intellectually even on a higher level because they've been around for so long and they know so many things. Uh, so they can, they can sense condescension. We can sense condescension immediately. We know who's trying to be nice to us uh, just to uh, get rid of us or... or, uh, or uh, to come off as a nice person as opposed to being genuinely good. So it's the most important thing is to be caring and not to condescend. And the rest of it is having a little knowledge of what's going on with the person you're taking care of and to know some signs and symptoms so that you can get them to appropriate medical help or whatever other facilities they need at the appropriate time. Mm -hmm. Another thing we're learning is don't institutionalize people unless you absolutely have to. And even if people have to move into a different type of living than they're used to, it doesn't have to be a, a vast difference between what they're experiencing now and where you want them to be and where, in fact, they want to be. And as a matter of fact, right now, besides things like retirement homes and residences, there's a whole middle layer of something called active aging communities. This is for people who are uh, physically adept and they're, and they're mentally active and they... Uh, they don't need to be in some kind of a home. All they need is is a, a nice place to be with with a lot of uh, ability to do exercise and to have fun and to get together and and to pursue their lives. Dr. Kaplan, the author of The Care of the Older Person, an invaluable resource for care providers. And we were talking about older folks and making decisions that are important and that are basically life-changing and sometimes making a decision to give up a career. Some of your colleagues in the medical community making that decision not 
to go back into an operating room again. And many of us have made that decision. We make it for ourselves. It's very, very rare, very rare, that the, the medical staff or, or the, uh, the governing board of a hospital or the uh, federal or state authorities have to come in and say, this guy's got to stop because he's a menace to society. And those are the, the things you read about in the paper, hear about in the news. It's very, very rare. Right? You know, it's, it's most of us are smart enough and wise enough to make a decision that we're here to help people. And the day we feel that we're not helping people 100%, that's the day we walk. And we all make that decision voluntarily. It, it's an old concept, but a good one. So, yes, if... if at some point, you're on the road, right? And you're driving your car, and you say, geez, I'm not seeing too well here. So you stop driving at night. How many of us make that kind of a decision? Nobody tells us to stop driving at night, right? But just, you say, okay, maybe I'm not as good on the road as I used to be at night. A lot of people, younger people, love to drive at night. There's less traffic. The illumination is good. Uh, the truck drivers who are on the road are generally pros, so they don't do anything stupid usually. So it's a great time to drive. But at some point in your life, you say, okay, I'm not going to drive anymore at night. And you make that decision. Nobody makes it for you. If, and if you're, a, if you're a, a wise person and you have your wits about you, then you make that decision. Again, it, I would say it's relatively rare that somebody has to take away your car keys and or that the state authority has to say, guess what, we're not issuing you a new driver's license, or worse, we're revoking your driver's license, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important for the individual and for the society, really, that we all have that freedom of choice and we make the right decisions for ourselves and for our friends and neighbors and, and the greater society that we what we're here for is to do good, not harm. And now, if you're in the situation, I think the other thing that maybe you're getting to, so maybe I'll get to it first, is that I think we should all be prepared for eventualities that might happen to us, a hospitalization, a major sickness, death. Mm -hmm. So many people... Uh, die without a will. Make a will. Make sure that there's some kind of an orderly transition. Give a power of attorney, maybe, to somebody you really, really trust. You'd better be sure you really trust that person if you're giving them a power of attorney. And it, and it could be limited or, or it, it could be unlimited, depending. And it could be a, the type of power of attorney that only comes up uh, say, if you are in a debilitating sickness, then that person is not allowed to take over until you're hospitalized and some doctor has attested to this, something like that. And, you, and we should all have, you should have something called a living will. You should be able to, even if you're unconscious, that uh, there doesn't have to be a huge discussion about whether to keep you alive interminably or let you go. I think these are things reasonable people can do. And 
you'd be amazed how many people don't do that. Maybe a majority don't do, do all those things. Dr. Kaplan, thank you very much for your kindness with your time and uh, the information you've shared with us. I know this information is very valuable for the folks listening to us this morning, too. Well, I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I really appreciate you getting this information out there because I really think it's important. Thanks. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. Radio.com. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program with uh, Doctor by Dr. Frida Birnbaum. She has joined us before on our program. She's a research psychologist, psychoanalyst, author of Life Begins at 60, A New View on Motherhood, Marriage, and Reinventing Ourselves, an expert on depression, women's issues, attaining happiness. And she's joining us on our program today. Well, we're going to be talking about the relationship with one's dad or father in adolescence and the effect that that has on your mental health as an adult. It's nice to have you join us again on our program. Good morning. Thank you so much. Good morning to you. That idea of the relationship with one's father in adolescence having an impact on one's mental health as an adult, is that surprising to some people when you mention that? It's absolutely surprising. Most people feel the mother plays the major role. Mm. But guess what? Research is showing today that fathers are the ones that have the biggest impact on both daughters and sons. That's surprising. Especially on daughters and sons. Daughters and sons. Because uh, what happens is when a daughter has the impression that she's being supported uh, for her career rather than being supported because she looks beautiful or she is pleasing and taken care of, that has a huge impact as well on how she sees herself uh, through her father, the opposite sex. And then she tends to look for that in other men as well. And then, of course, the male role model for boys is extremely important because it addresses their masculinity. It addresses the way they need to be as a role model for their children and their lives. So it's usually important for children to see themselves in a very supportive role uh, through their fathers, who are often less of the caretaker, but more of the one who goes out there in the world and brings back information. What about the situation where the father... And, you know, we see this very often these days. The father's the one who's constantly cracking jokes. What kind of influence does that have? That could be the best father to have. You know, life brings you all kinds of problems. And how you cope with those problems really make the huge difference. So if you could be lighthearted and you can take care of it in a way that doesn't affect you and you don't stay stuck with it, well, as an adult... You also have comfort with humor, and then you can also resolve situations in a way that's much more doable than having it affect you even after the problem has finished. As opposed to the situation where, you know, some kids grew up with that dad that just seemed to be angry all the time. 
Yeah, that's one of the worst kind of fathers to have. Because, you know, you live in a state of fear. Uh, is he going to be mad about something? And then what happens? You want to please him. And trying to please him makes you, it puts you in a subservient role and makes you feel criticized and rejected. And then a lot of people in my practice come to me and say, why is it the very things I didn't like my parents or my mother or my father I have become? Because you continue, even when they're no longer around, to justify why they behave towards you. So you're critical of yourself, you reject yourself in front of other people, you put yourself down, and then you become a victim, and nobody helps a victim, and you stay stuck. Can this also affect how it is that as adults, if you've had a father like this, being able to, to really trust other adults? No, you have difficulty developing trust on both a professional and personal level, and then that gets you in trouble because you have to trust somebody somewhere. Not everyone's not telling the truth. So you're right, it does develop into something much more challenging as you become an adult. And uh, it's sad because these fathers, these angry fathers, have issues that if only they could get help, uh, they would be happier as well. The father who seems to be Mr. Fix-It, literally, always the handyman there to fix whatever. What does that instill in children? That's a wonderful father to have because it helps you to be creative. It helps you to be inventive. It helps you to think out of the box. So if you go in that direction and also somebody who is into reading, into exploring life, into finding out new things about what life can offer you, well, this gives children a sense of independence and appreciation for knowledge. And these kids often become entrepreneurs and leaders as well because they trust their judgment. The overachieving dad. Well, he's interesting because he's very successful and it can go either way. You can have children who doubt themselves because they can never be as successful. So they're always delaying their gratification. I have to do this one more thing. And you know, men into adulthood tend to do that. They tend to feel it's never enough. So they never get to that right place. But if that father brings you along with him, and includes you, then you learn how to be successful as well. As well, and isn't that a wonderful way to have a future for yourself? To have somebody as a role model who really knows the ropes. Well, though, wouldn't there be a certain level of insecurity that could develop if the child of somebody who is that overachiever? Absolutely. You know, a child who is with an overachiever uh, can develop uh, insecurity and feel inadequate because they're constantly comparing themselves. So that's something that we need to stop doing no matter who our parents are or no matter what happens uh, because someone else is always going to be doing something better. But if you're living with someone, especially, and it's a constant everyday theme, that they are not doing as well, and it's a constant reminder. We can really learn from that in general, that when you have a father 
who challenges you, challenges you, meet up to your own challenge of who you are and what you can do. Maybe you can do something in a different area. Not everyone is good in this with the same type of situation. Other people are good in math. Other people are good in art. And who can determine what is most important? You should celebrate everything that you are and be aware of the joy coming from what it is that you're doing, not what somebody else is doing. What about the situation where you've got basically a helicopter parent in the dad? That's a very interesting kind of father because he's going to become the coach. He's going to be doing your artwork for you in school. Um, And in a sense, you won't be able to fail because he's going to be right there picking up the pieces. But what happens as an adult, um, you don't fail. Well, it's difficult to succeed if you don't give yourself the opportunity to try, and that is the prerequisite for succeeding. So these fathers need to step back, relax, and help the children make decisions for themselves so they can develop without having this codependency on other people. The father who's an alcohol or drug abuser, the effect that has on the children? Well, you know, this is something that's genetic. This is something that's very difficult to change. So we're talking about an addiction, and uh, these parents are absolutely parole models, and they they themselves need guidance, um, and they have difficulty giving that to their children. Love, the children need love, unconditional love and guidance. So they could often develop, the children of these fathers, obsessive-compulsive behavior, codependency, and even become addicted, I can't speak today, addicts uh, themselves into adulthood. But here's another opportunity to take that type of addictive behavior, obsessive-compulsive behavior, that you really can't help. As I said, it could be genetic, but change it into something else. You can go into a field that helps you to be obsessive with, let's say, computer science, where you could really reach all kinds of levels of accomplishments and achievements, and it doesn't have to be negative. Because, you know, our our younger generation, the millennials, are very addicted to the computers and to uh, looking at what is going on through the world, through computers, and they are obsessive-compulsive. But then again, if they can help with technology and make changes in the world, how great is that? Mm. The situation with senior citizens where their health is improving, but at the same time, rates of depression and anxiety are rising, how can that be? Uh, well, uh, we have so many things going on today in our world. Now, you said seniors? Mm-hmm. Seniors really are very interesting people uh, because they have a lot of wisdom to offer, and today we're living younger, longer. So they also have the youthfulness on their side. But, you know, depression comes from not having control often. And when you have to worry about 
uh, your health benefits, relationship problems that often change, what it is that you're financially benefiting from and you're limited uh, to making choices with those finances. So life does have its challenges as you get older. But, you know, it's really what defines you is having some kind of passion for what it is you're doing and being productive in some way, giving, and not necessarily having to get back, but that's just the joy of giving that can make all the difference in the world because it really isn't about money. It's more about the feeling you have of making some kind of difference to other people that really brings joy and can help with depression. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our top of the hour update at 8 o'clock. Ed Randall is by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. Dr. Frida Birnbaum is talking with us on our program. She is a research psychologist, psychoanalyst, author of Life Begins at 60, a new view on motherhood, marriage, and reinventing ourselves. She's an expert on depression, women's issues, and attaining happiness. Final thoughts in uh, our discussion today, and this deals with teens and sexting. How do parents get a a handle on this? You know, there's certain apps, first of all, that can really identify this, uh, certain words that are used and block the people, as well as having a relationship. It's harder today to have a relationship with your kids, with your teens, than it used to be because, as I said, they're so addicted to this, especially boys. So we need to have some kind of set rules. By the way, parents should be able to come into the room, should be able to see what they're doing, and there are apps, again, that they can look and see. I have a patient who actually came in reporting to me what his son is talking about, what he's uh, connecting to his friends on the computer, on the Internet. So there are ways to do that. But when you do have a closer relationship uh, with your children, and that means talking about the smallest things, then they will be comfortable talking to you about bigger things. But you, teenagers need to know the consequences of going viral when you're doing this and the damage it could cause to the other person. There have actually been suicides uh, because of this as well, because people, when they're not face-to-face, are bolder uh, and being inappropriate. Uh, so saying things about other people, uh, even fat shaming or sexting or whatever that is, or showing pictures of yourself in the nude, well, you know what? That's not going to be something that's going to be private. And what happens if you break up with each other? Do you think you can guarantee that it's going to be confidential? Absolutely not. You know, we need to have programs for teenagers, even in school, about the implications of what it is to be able to have privacy on the Internet, which you cannot guarantee. And these kids are bullied, and we need to have programs in school that are mandatory, how to behave with one, each, uh, with one another and what to do when this happens. We need to stand up to our, for ourselves, not to be able to be passive and give in. Because I've heard so many teenagers tell me, well, 
If you're nice, you're not going to go on their level. No. Bullies like to go to the weakest link. You need to be able to stand up to them and take care of yourself and not necessarily go to authorities because as adults, some of the same people that are bullied as teenagers are bullied as adults, and there are no authorities around. You need to be your own authority. Dr. Frida Birnbaum, thank you very much for joining us on My our program. Pleasure. You shared an awful lot with us. Certainly good luck with your work and with your book, too. Thank you for your wonderful questions. I appreciate it. Take care. Always a pleasure. I'm Bob Solter, joined by Florence Ann Romano. She's the Windy City Nanny. Yep, Windy City Nanny. That's all as one word, dot com. She's a dedicated philanthropist, former nanny, who's always had a special place in her heart for children. She worked for over 15 years as a nanny. Uh, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I want to do some background. We're going to be talking about this um, whole issue or issues surrounding when newborns are left in the hands of a nanny. And we'll get into talking about a specific uh, instance in this case in just a moment or two. I use that term nanny. And I Mm -hmm. often wonder in our society, how many people are really familiar with what a nanny does and even the perception that people have of the work of a nanny? That definition is definitely changing. And because of how many families today actually have a caretaker or a nanny in their home, that statistic is actually 60%, if you can believe it. 60% of families in America today have a nanny or a caretaker for their children. And that statistic rises in line with the employment rate. So what we're seeing is not something that is trendy. We're seeing something that is a behavior of society. And the reason for this is that more and more parents are both working outside of the home and they need someone taking care of their children. Now, beyond that, a nanny can be someone that lives in with you, which I think most people think when they think nanny, they think, oh, Upper East Side, New York, or live in nanny, that sort of thing. And it it really is a very different definition today because now we have nannies that are maybe just perhaps there during the day while the parents are at work. They still do have live-in nannies, but really it's anyone that's taking care of their children. So it's a pretty broad definition now. Um, and there's a stigma attached to it, unfortunately, because we hear reports all the time about, you know, the hot nannies in Hollywood that are cheating with the spouses and all sorts of things. And so it's, it's unfortunate that that's the rap that nannies have gotten now. But the definition of what a nanny is definitely changes per household. How did you get started as a nanny? I have to say it goes way back to when I was a little girl and I used to say to my mom, can we go to the hospital to get my baby? And by that I meant, can we go to the toy store so I can get my baby doll? I I just loved children from a very early age. And at about around 11 years old, I started as a mother's helper uh, with a couple uh, different families in the neighborhood to learn really how to be a babysitter then, you know, to become a nanny. And I really just fell in love with it right then and there. And that experience as a nanny, in sharing 
that experience with others, what do you find most surprises people about what nannies really do versus what people think they do? The most surprising element, I, I think, of being a nanny is really the fact that you are an extension of that family or an extension of those parents. I like to say, by definition, a nanny is an extension of the parents' eyes, ears, and hearts. And that, to me, is amazing. It's, it's an amazing honor. And I don't think that people understand how attached these nannies get to these children and to these families and what they're actually doing in terms of interacting with these children. They are essentially a role model for these kids. They are, they are with them during very impressionable years and they're helping them through obstacles and, 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 and sadness and heartache and joy and they're seeing it all. So this is really a person that has an inside view to a life that is that's being formed, a journey that's happening. So that's the deepest, you know, way to, to describe it. But I don't think people necessarily understand the attachment there. Sharing your experiences in a book, which you did in Nanny and Me, which was officially published by uh, Mascot Books in 2015, what was that like? It was surreal. I, I I knew I wanted to write children's books uh, very long ago, before really I wanted to do anything else. And I I thought to myself, what am I going to write about? It's just going to have to come to me organically. And when I looked at the children's book market and I saw that there really wasn't anything out there that spoke to the child specifically in this situation about what happens when mom and dad go to work and who stays home with you, I felt that it was a huge disservice to the most important person in the equation, and that's the child, because there are so many questions associated with this process, with the, with the parents leading. The child looks inward and thinks, is it because mom and dad don't love me? Or, you know, why, other moms stay home? Why is it mine? Other dads stay home? Why is it mine? There are so many, so many questions. And you want to put the child's mind at ease knowing that they're going to be safe and loved. And beyond that, the parents also need peace of mind knowing that they're making the right decision for their child. So seeing this book now be in homes and being used as a tool to help educate the children and the parents is really just a beautiful moment for me. You mentioned a term a couple of moments ago when you used the term a hot nanny. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> this always comes up in discussions about this. Should it even be an issue as to whether or not a hot nanny should be hired? It depends on the family dynamic. I never want to be one to judge a book by its cover or say that you just you can't have anyone attractive in your household. It really begins with the interview process. And what I mean by this is you and your spouse or, you know, whomever it is who's making this decision with you, and if it's just yourself, that's fine too. But when you're sitting down with these prospective nannies and a nanny, it could be a woman or a man, let's be honest, today we have a lot of male nannies as well. If this person is very attractive and 
you don't think that you are comfortable with that, then you and your spouse, you and your partner need to have a conversation about that right from the get-go. And even if it's uncomfortable and you say, honey, you know, I, I just don't think that, that I, I could handle this or I, I just don't think this is the right thing for our family. Instead of getting mad at your husband or your wife or your spouse for, for, for being honest about that, be thankful that they were honest about it and move on to the next person because there always will be someone else that's qualified. But if you're going to bring temptation into the house in some way, shape, or form, you're going to be taking away from what the nanny is supposed to be doing, and that is taking care of the children and what you're supposed to be doing, and that's making sure the nanny is taking care of the children. Ed Randall is by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. Rick Wolf has the sports edge after our 8 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We're talking on our program with Florence Ann Romano. She's the Windy City Nanny, Windy City Nanny, that's all as one word, dot com. That process of hiring a nanny, what is that like? It's very challenging, and it can be daunting. And I see a lot of parents wanting to rush through it because, let's face it, life is busy. And most of the time you're hiring a nanny, it's because you have to go back to work or something has happened where you realize that you need help and you want to make that as seamless as possible, as efficient as possible. And I agree, let's make it, let's make it as easy as we can. But that doesn't mean that it's not hard work when actually vetting these nannies. So I suggest, you know, you could use a you could use a nanny service. You could there's plenty of things online now. You can go and you can use things like Care.com or or au pair, you know, services. Those are fine, but that doesn't let you off the hook of actually doing the work and making sure that this is the right person for your home. So you need to take matters to your own hands and have those interviews. I suggest a tiered process. The first one you meet, have coffee, get to know them, really do a deep dive into the, the people that they, you know, the person that they are. Um, this is not a corporate interview. Really, there are no questions that you cannot ask. Uh, you can talk about religion. You can talk about their background. And I suggest that you do because this person is going to be influencing your child. Um, and you need to talk about what your values are as a family. You know, what is your religion? Will, the, will that nanny have to take um, your kids to church? You know, these are all things that you need to discuss way beforehand because this is my famous phrase, if we don't agree, it's not for me. And that's both for the nanny and the parent. You have to be on the same page because if you're not, you're you're really setting yourself up for disaster. The idea of a nanny dress code, is that something you think parents should require? Whatever parents need to do to make themselves comfortable, they should be able to do. If that's wearing a uniform, so be it. If that's saying that there's only a certain type of street clothes that they want, so be it. It is what is important and professional to the family. And if you don't agree as the nanny, again, that's not the family for you. What about those situations where you have difficult children and behavior issues? Because you're an extension of uh, of the family, of the parents, 
you need to understand as a nanny that you'll probably have to discipline in some way. This is not this is not 100% across the board. But again, this is something going back to the interview process. You need to make sure you're talking about. You, the parent, need to make sure it's clear that you are going to be disciplining the children. But you have to define what discipline means. That's very, very different from family to family. Discipline could mean spanking. Discipline could mean absolutely no physical talk, contact at all, but we're just talking about grounding or, you know, taking things away. You have to be very clear with your nanny about where their job ends and begins in terms of discipline. When we're talking about this um, idea of role of discipline and um, how disciplinary differences um, may be managed, is that a tricky thing for parents to establish? It's hard because parents, when it comes to discipline anyway, have a little bit of a difficult time figuring out where they want to stand with that. Because I think as parents go, they're they're trying to figure out what works for the child. It's always a customized situation, truthfully. Not every disciplinary action is going to work with every child. So you have to get to know the child in order to know what's going to work and not work with them. So that, I think, is, is is an interesting caveat to the to the whole situation. You, as the nanny, are going to have to spend time getting to know that child and then perhaps have to be reporting back to the parents about what you're finding is working and not working. Because, again, you, the nanny, are having a window into the world of this child and spending so much time with them that you may be noticing behavior that the parents aren't. So this is another sticky situation. You're really walking a fine line. But the best thing for all parties is that nannies and parents have a transparency and have an open communication where they look at themselves as a unified front and are able to have that conversation in a constructive way. What about creating an environment that promotes learning? Because that's an important part of the child's development, too. Learning was always the most important part of uh, of the day for, for me with children. I always wanted to make sure that we were learning something. We were we were always working on our colors and our ABCs and our one, two, threes and, and all of that. And again, that's something you want to discuss with the parents from the beginning about defining what education and learning needs to them. Because education could be just strictly workbooks. We could be just doing math equations all day long. And gosh, I hope not for, for, for that was me. I was hoping not for my sake that it was going to be math equations all day long. <laughs> um, but for um, other parents, it could be going to museums, getting that culture. That could be the definition of education to them, really exposing them to different things. So again, these are all things you need to cover from the get-go in those interviews because everybody has a different idea about what that means. And you, the parent, need to communicate to the nanny the values of your family, the values of discipline, the values of education. That all is different in every single family. Now we get to the situation that occurred with uh, John Legend and his wife, uh, Chrissy. Mm-hmm. They, Chrissy Teigen. <laughs> yes. They, they have a night out, okay? Mm-hmm. They have a newborn. Mm-hmm. The newborn is left with the nanny. And basically, she gets blasted mm-hmm, online. Mm-hmm. Fair yep. or not fair? Totally unfair. 
totally unfair. And I'll tell you, when I first saw that story come out, I saw it on the news and I went, oh, here we go. And this is exactly what the problem is with the stigma with a nanny is people think that that parents use nannies as a replacement for themselves so they don't have to parent, so they get off the hook, so they don't have to be a part of their children's lives. I mean, that to me just sounds like such a bunch of bunk because the reason the nanny is there is to help the family as a whole. Anyone that saw Mary Poppins, the movie, and I'm sure most of people have, will know that Mary Poppins is there to help unify that family, heal that family, bring that family together. If you have the right nanny in your home, that's what that nanny is going to do. In the case of Chrissy Teigen and and John Legend, every parent is entitled to a little time off. No one spends 100% of the time with their child. It's no different than a family who's not in the limelight going out for like an hour or two just for dinner to get out of the house to give them a little break. Everyone is entitled to that. But because they are out there, you know, in the magazines, they're always looking for a reason to, to get upset or get up in arms about it or start a conversation that's controversial. But I felt so badly for her because mothers at that point are already sensitive. There's a lot of hormones going around. And the worst thing a new mother can ever hear from someone is they think that they're doing the wrong thing for their child. Imagine you know, being a celebrity and then hearing from, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people saying, gosh, you're such a bad mother and getting a finger pointed at you like that. That's embarrassing. And it makes you feel bad as strong as she might be about it. I felt very badly for her just as a mother, regardless of her celebrity status. That was very wrong. And I think very uh, just unfortunate for her as a new mom who She's trying to do the right thing for her child who loves her child so much, and she's getting blasted for it, making it sound like she's a bad mother and doesn't care. What about that whole idea of just the importance of some free time for a new mom? A new mom, the things that go on in that poor new mom's head, it's all about this new child, this new life you're in charge of. And that is a a daunting, exhausting, beautiful task that, that you now have in front of you. But the only way for someone to do their job well is to make sure they have a little break here and there. Any of us, you know, anyone with jobs, it's important that on the weekends you get a little downtime, you get a little vacation time. Why? Because recharging is important for you and for you to do your job well and to be, you know, a a member of society that is, you know, proactive and, 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 uh, professional and engaging, all these things. The only way to do it is if you have a little break, and that goes for parents, too. Every parent deserves a break. And when we talk about the idea of the benefits of having a nanny, and this will kind of bring us full circle in our discussion, we're talking with Florence Ann Romano on our program. She's the Windy City Nanny, Windy City Nanny, all is one word, dot com. What would you point to as the benefits of having a nanny? 
depending on the situation, if you're a working, if you're both working, both parents are working, or sometimes there are nannies in the home, and this is also controversial, where the mother is not working or the father is not working and there is still a nanny in the house. It's not up to anyone to judge what you need to do to make your family whole, to make your family work. But having a nanny is going to complete your family in the way that your family needs it completed. If there's a void that needs filling and the nanny is doing that, then that's a beautiful blessing for your family. It can help educate the child. It can this nanny can help um, bring bring a little bit more efficiency to the family. This nanny can help bring another um, a role model into the fold. There are many different benefits to having a nanny, but the most important thing to remember is that a nanny is there to help the family function. And you, the parent, need to decide what that person looks like, who that person is, how do they fit in the family. You make the rules as the parent, and it should be a beautiful and wonderful experience, and this person should be a part of your family and an extension of you. And if you can do that, then you're going to be set up for a lifetime of memories, and it will be the best thing you ever did for not only your children, but you as well. Florence Ann Romano, the Windy City Nanny, our guest this portion of our program. She's also the author of Nanny and Me, published by Mascot Books in uh, 2015. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly good luck continued with your work. Thank you for having me. Well, a fine howdy-do, that'll do it for us, too. We're wrapped up on our program. We make way for Rick Wolf in the top of the hour update. It precedes him. The Sports Edge program follows that. After our 9 o'clock update, Ed Randall is by. He'll be talking baseball here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.